Hello, Greyhound. This is Trap One. Do you read me? Over. one podcast my name is Marco Comanis this week on the T1 book club we're looking at Paul Cornell's novelization of Twice Upon a Time who better to talk about this with than writer of the Doctor Who novels blog Jason Miller welcome back Jason Mark thank you so much for having me on again I'm very much looking forward to talking about the next Paul Cornell book no problem at all yeah this is uh this is interesting after um well the last few projects it seems to have been kind of announced that it was his last Doctor Who work um, but he keeps getting lured back, doesn't he? Which uh, I'm always really relieved when he does. I am very happy that he came back for this one, especially for such a personal book. So before we go on to talk about the book, we've had some other Doctor Who book news recently. Um, in October, we're getting three new novels for The Thirteenth Doctor and Her Companions, um, which are The Good Doctor by Juno Dawson, The Molten Heart by Una McCormack, and Combat Magics by Steve Cole. So looking forward to reading these. This seems to be the format now, doesn't it? A sort of a, a trilogy of books comes out kind of generally once a year for the incumbent Doctor at the time. Yes, they pretty much settled into that format with the first set of Ninth Doctor books, which was probably, what, 2005 or 2006? And it's a pretty good format. And this yeah. is a good trilogy of writers, too, because you have Luna McCormack has written several books for the new series, then you have Steve Cole, who wrote several of the BBC books before the series came back and was kind of the editor of the line, and was also the editor of the Novelizations Project. So he's about as professional a choice as you can get. Yeah. Uh, he's gone on to some success with the Young Bond novels more recently. I'm not sure those have great market penetration here in the States, so I have to confess I am not familiar with those. Ah, right. I haven't read any of them yet. I've read some of the Charlie Higson ones. He wrote the first sort of five, I think, and then Steve Cole's taken over the range. Um, oh, Mark, you've added uh, to my summer reading. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and these books seem to be in, in addition to the previously announced uh, The Secret in Vault 13 by David Solomons, which is scheduled for release on the 1st of November. So I'm not sure how that one fits in. I think something I read made me think it was maybe more of a young adult type book. Ah, as opposed to a full-length uh, 400-page novel, which they have given us in the past from time to time. Yeah, um, but it seems, yeah, it seems like there is. Uh, we're, we're going to get four books for the new Doctor in one way or another. Uh, so we're going to get the trilogy, we're going to get the Solomon's book, and then we're going to get the Naomi Alderman novella. Yeah, so the um, previously we had the 12... Doctor's 12 Stories run, where they had stories by sort of Neil Gaiman, Patrick Ness, who went on to create the spin-off class, Charlie Higson, Mallory Blackman, Holly Black. Um, and they I think the original run was 11 for the 30th. Then they got yes. the 12th Doctor one, and then another new one for the, for the new Doctor as well, um, which uh, I don't think there's a title for that one yet, but she's previously wrote the 11th Doctor novel, Borrowed Time. That is one of my favorites of the new series, Adventures. It was wickedly clever. In fact, I became a big fan of hers that I went out and I got her non-Doctor Who novel called The Liar's Gospel, which was also tremendously, tremendously fascinating. So I'll, I will read anything that has Naomi Alderman's name on it for sure. Definitely. We should, uh, we should do a podcast on that one when it comes out. Uh, oh, you can count me in. I'm looking forward to that. Great. I haven't read any of her, um, her other work, but she does have a few novels that, uh, that look quite interesting, so I'll, uh, I'm going to keep an eye out for those myself. 
Uh, and finally, Liar's Gospel takes place in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago, so it's historical fiction. No science fiction at all, but I think you'll really enjoy it. Ah, right. Oh, cool. Yeah, definitely, definitely look that one out. We have a collection of Jenny T. Colgan Doctor Who stories called The Triple Knife. So I'm not sure if this is a previously published Doctor Who book, so whether it's a new collection, uh, there's the sort of scant details about that at the moment. And this is in addition to the novelization that she just came out with. Yeah, she's done The Christmas Invasion, yeah, adapted from uh, Russell T. Davis's script, obviously, yeah. So she's been very, very busy, that's good to see. Yeah, yeah, she, she had a, is it just last year she did the 10th Doctor novel in the blood as well? And I... I think she did the full-length 11th Doctor novel, uh, the one that took place with the Vikings, if memory serves me right. I haven't yes. picked that up in several years, but I believe that was her. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I like that one. That was about the, um, that, the I can't remember the name of it, but the, the chess set. Is it, isn't it the early the earliest example of a chess set that they found? Yes. Um, I think it was how it came about. Yeah, I did enjoy that one. It's good. Good. And what's really exciting about this news is the proliferation of female writers, because when I... I was coming of age with Doctor Who fiction in the wilderness years in the early 1990s. I think there was one female author in a good 10-year stretch. We have definitely come a long way since then. Absolutely, yeah. It was, um, I've forgotten the name, isn't it? The uh, Kate Orman. Kate Orman. Kate Orman was the, uh, the, yeah, she's the only one that springs to mind from the New Adventure run. She was the only one of the entire New Adventure series, the only female writer. Right. Yeah, no, this is uh, yeah, this is much better. And then the the thirteenth Doctor um, comic from Titan, which which is due to start, I think, with the new series, um, is entirely female led. I think. Good. It's about time. Yeah. Uh, Part so of the fun. Looking forward to that as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, b- before we move on to Paul Connell's book, I was a big fan of his um, newsletter email. Um, and a couple of editions ago, I saw your name in there. I was very, very lucky. Paul runs a weekly to monthly giveaway. So you answer a trivia question, and if you are the correct answer and your name is drawn randomly, you get a Paul Cornell original. So I was fortunate enough to win the audiobook CDs of Scream of the Shalka, which was his original pre-Christopher Eccleston Ninth Doctor novel, read by David Collings, who starred in several episodes in the classic series, and it's autographed by Paul. So this was a huge win. Fantastic. Very excited. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah I quite like Scream of the Shalker. It's the, they say it's the novelization of the, uh, the, the web animation uh, they did with Richard E. Grant as the Doctor, isn't it? Um, I, I... Yes, the web animation is now on DVD, and the novelization, I think, was out of print, but now we have a full-length audiobook reading. Brilliant. That's great. I don't, I don't know if I read the novelization, but yeah, I've got the DVD. I think it's a, an underrated story. It's, uh, it's, it's good. Uh, I like Richard E. Grant as well. Yes, definitely a look at a road not taken. This is what could have been before they got the green light to make the new series. Yeah, I think um, there was even a little bit of overlap, wasn't it? And they, they basically kind of shut it down after that first one had gone out. There was, um, I believe, some scripts planned for subsequent adventures for the, the, the Schalke Doctor, as they call him now. Um, but the trivial question that I got right was, what future Doctor Who has a small audio role in the original webcast? And it was David Tennant. 
which I learned from watching the DVD release and the audio commentary on the DVD. Ah, right. And kind of talked his way into joining, so they gave him a very small part. And then a few years later, he was Doctor Who himself. Yeah, because you read about that, don't you? Well, he did a few big finishes as well. Um, and I think um, had been asking Russell T. Davis for a part in Doctor Who when he was writing for Christopher Eccleston's Doctor, because uh, obviously he's a, he's a kind of a lifelong fan as well. So uh, you did all the right things to get on well, the radar. Boy, did they get a part for him. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Cornell's newsletter is excellent. Um, he, uh, as you say, it comes out weekly, and he, he doesn't just promote his upcoming projects. He, he kind of promotes unpublished creators, uh, which he used to do a lot on his podcast as well, the Cornell Collective. I always ended up with a kind of a big list of things to watch and read on, on the back of the people who would interview on there. Um, and just recently he started a new section on there, My Who History, which is how he got started as a writer, started writing for Doctor Who. Um, it's really interesting read. Uh, and then there's a new thread starting soon where he's going to talk about his unmade Doctor Who scripts, which I'm really looking forward to. I think it's going to be, uh, going to be fascinating to, to read those bits. It's a very autobiographical, very personal newsletter. comes out mm. once a week. And he's been talking story by story. Right now he's up to the comics that he did for Doctor Who magazine in the early 90s before his books came out. And he also talks a lot about being a parent. I've got a seven-year-old child, so that stuff is very close to home for me. It's very interesting to see his take on it. Yeah. Um, and the well, one of them, that he was talking about the first comic strip um, that he had published in Doctor Who magazine. Uh, he he kind of talks like, quite honestly about what kind of a person he was uh, kind of back in those days. Uh, you know, kind of mistakes that he made and, and, and things like that which uh, I felt kind of chimed with this book as well, with, with Twice Upon a Time, the way you got the 12th Doctor um, and the 1st Doctor, and he's kind of seeing, the, the, you know, the, the, the later Doctor kind of seeing what he was like when he was younger, cringing a little bit at times, that kind of thing. It, uh, you know, I wondered if that was uh, kind of on his mind when he was writing it and, um, you know, kind of preparing these blogs as well. Well, talking about yourself in the past, if you are a 55-year-old man writing a book about how awkward your three-year-old self was, you're going to get a lot of mileage. Yeah. And that's very much what Twice Upon a Time is about. Yeah. It's 2018 getting embarrassed by 1966. Absolutely. So one thing I was going to ask, actually, yeah, I um, recently have kind of reordered my Doctor Who collection, uh, my kind of target books and things like that. I just had in the loft now get enough shelves to, to kind of get them all out. Ever since I was a kid, I've always put my novelizations in target library number order. Um, but kind of talking to people on Twitter, nobody else does this. It seems like most people put it in story chronological order. I was wondering, as somebody who blogs about the target books, what do you do? I started collecting in early 1985, which is only a couple of months after I started watching Doctor Who on PBS. So in the beginning, and especially before I had the program guide and before I knew which stories went where, my initial inkling was to put the books in target number order. And I did that probably for about a year. Mm -hmm. The problem that you run into is that target order is alphabetical. So the first – somebody else would know this better than me, but I think the first 70 or 80 books are arranged chronologically. So it goes from Abominable Snowman number one to Zarbi, which is probably in the 70s or 80s. After that, the book came out in random order, so everything from 80 onwards 
not alphabetical. And I found that aesthetically displeasing, or <laughs> as much as a 14-year-old can find anything to be aesthetically displeasing. So once I had the program guide, I started putting everything in strict story order. So even to this day, I have a very large plastic container, which is exactly the right size to fit 160 target size paperbacks. So I have them under my bed. So when I moved from New York to California, I put the books in that case. When I moved from California back to New York, they were still in that case, and they're still there now. And I have two rows, one on top of the other, starting with one ugly child on the top left going all the way across. And then the second row ends with survival. And there's just enough room for every book. And there's a little bit of space on the bottom for all the randoms. So the missing season 23 stories, Canine and Company, the Companions books. Slip by. I have those sort of in a miscellaneous inch or two of space on the bottom of the container. Which begs the question, what am I going to do with the new novelizations? Because they're <laughs> not going to fit in my current plastic carrying case. Well, and yeah. they have to start a new shelf. Yeah, I've uh, yeah, because I've always had them in target uh, target number order, which uh, I've never really thought of and, and thought about until recently. But uh, yeah, I always had, like you say, the the unmade season twenty three stories uh, slip back the TV movie kind of thing, just kind of on the end. So um, I think these new ones, the new series ones, are going to have to go after those. But I'm going to have to put these in chronological order because they're not numbered. So uh, I might have to rethink the whole system now. I belong to the Target Books group on Facebook, which I highly recommend everybody join. That is kind of like Target porn. Everybody who belongs to that group posts collections of their Doctor Who books, and I am just in awe. You've got people who have entire bookcases dedicated, starting with Unearthly Child, going through Survival, then the New Adventures, the Missing Adventures, the Eighth Doctor Adventures the BBC Past Doctor's Adventures, the new series books, plus all the DVDs and VHS tapes and big finished compact discs. I will never compete with that level of collection, so mine is rather meager compared to that. But if you ever want to live the dream, join the group, the uh, Target group, the Target Books group on Facebook, and look at those photographs. It is an inspiration. Brilliant. I'll take a look at that. When I win the lottery and I have enough money to build a Doctor Who room, that's what I'm going to aim for. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we, we better start talking about the book. Um, this is obviously the, book? the most recent episode of Doctor Who to be broadcast. Um, what what were your thoughts of the TV story when it when it went out? Uh, let me just backtrack a little bit. I am a huge first Doctor fan. Mm -hmm. uh, my PBS station in New York started running An Unearthly Child about nine months into my fandom. So I got to see the black and white stories in the 80s, probably much earlier than the UK folks did, where reruns were a lot harder to come back. And in the year 2013, an earlier version of my blog, The Pilgrimage. So I started with Unearthly Child, and I went all the way through about season five until I ran out of time. But I managed to blog every... Hartnell story, and I finished it up with a recap of the Hartnell era. I'm a huge fan of Hartnell as the Doctor. I'm a huge fan of most of the stories of that era. So for me, when I think about Doctor Who, a large part of me still thinks in black and white, 
and still thinks about the original Hartnell run and how much of a fan I am of that first three, three and a half years. So the level of excitement when I went into the last series two-parter, The Doctor Falls was the last episode, mm-hmm. I had no idea what was coming. I kept myself spoiler-free. But when he lands in the South Pole and David Bradley, you can hear his voice, I just went nuts. It was tremendously exciting for me. Nothing excited me more than the idea of Capaldi, my favorite doctor from the new series, versus one of my favorite doctors from the old series. I was tremendously, tremendously excited for this. And during the six-month wait between The Doctor Falls and Twice Upon a Time, I was maybe dreaming the story about once a week. That's how excited I was. (laughs) So the initial thrill of watching Twice Upon a Time, getting to see David Bradley, getting to see the first Doctor back, I was on cloud nine or cloud ten if the cloud hierarchy goes that high. It's only until you watch the episode a second or third time that you begin to get the sense that maybe Stephen Moffat is not as big a fan of William Hartnell and the first Doctor as I am. As I said earlier, it's definitely the sense of a 55-year-old man writing a book about how much he didn't like himself when he was three. Yeah. So I would have written a very different script had I been given the opportunity. I would have made it much more a meeting of equals rather than the 12th Doctor being embarrassed by his previous self. I think a lot of the vibe, people seem to remember Hartnell as a racist and they remember the stories as being very regressive. I would argue that's not the case, and I think that twice upon a time the script is playing on a perception of the first Doctor that might not be entirely true. It takes a lot of stuff out of context, but that's just my personal opinion. I'd be happy to discuss with anybody else. I thought the TV episode could have been a little nicer and could have given more of a break for the first Doctor, but I'm happy to say the novelization does manage to work with a lot of my concerns and put me in a much better frame of mind. I don't know if you're coming from this uh, at the same angle that I am with regard to the first Doctor, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I um, I, I agree with what you mean, because I know a lot of the quotes which um, people are unhappy with that they saw online afterwards, they are direct quotes from the first Doctor, um, but as you say, not in the same context, and... Uh, kind of um, squeezed together over a much shorter time, rather than over his, his three and a half year tenure. You know, they're in a they're in a sixty minute episode. Um, I think to some extent you have to kind of when you when you uh, when you do a multi doctor story, you kind of get a bit of a thumbnail, don't you, of of the previous doctors. So David Tennant in uh, the Day of the Doctor, he's you know they play up the kind of the Lothario kind of elements of. Um, uh, of his incarnation, um, which, you know, they are there throughout the reign, but they're not or throughout his tenure. But then, you know, in an individual episode, it's not the um, the overriding kind of characteristic. Um, but I think, yeah, I think right. you can kind of see what, um, there, there is some, like you say, some embarrassment from the 12th Doctor. Um, and there, it does kind of cut both ways, I think, where... The uh, the first Doctor is a little bit embarrassed about the twelfth Doctor as well, especially in the book. He he refers to him as the fop and the wastrel uh, and that kind of thing, doesn't he? <laughs> which, which I like a lot. Um, there's uh, yeah, that uh, you know he's he's kind of he's got the the six shades. Um, 
I think there's a key bit in the episode is is where the first doctor looks at the 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 glass woman um and, and sees the uh, the asymmetry of the face and realizes that it is based on a real person uh whereas the twelfth doctor is is kind of more interested in the technology and maybe kind of uh boating a little bit. So I think... Um, and that's, of course, because there was no technology in the first Doctor's era. William Hartnell could not deliver technobabble lines. He had a much more humanistic approach. Whereas we're now, of course, in a virtual reality internet world, which the writers of the 1960s had no access to. Yeah, absolutely. But what's nice about the book is you get several scenes written from the first Doctor's point of view. So I think it puts the two on much more equal footing, as you say. Whereas on TV, David Bradley is playing a caricature of what the first Doctor was not. It's definitely the first Doctor at a remove. Yeah. The book does not have that, well, I don't know if you want to call it a drawback, but the book, I think, has a much more equal footing between the two men. Yeah. Which is good for me as an unabashed first Doctor fan. One of the things is uh, that that kind of marks it out, I think, a little bit, um, not so much from the the other books, the, the kind of stable mates of this one that have come out at the same time, but older Doctor Who books, you don't get that much time in the Doctor's head traditionally in Doctor Who books, do you? He's more mysterious. Um, I think especially the uh, the BBC sort of eighth Doctor books and things. Um, I remember reading the writer's guidelines for that when they were coming out, which in the 90s, uh, yeah, so late 90s. Um, and there was a specific rule, I think, about not really being privy to the doctor's thought processes too much and that kind of thing. Um, whereas this is, uh, this is very much you, uh, other than the times when you're from Bill or Archie's point of view, I'd say the majority of it is from one of the two doctors. Right. Not to the same extent as the day of the doctor novelization, which is a guessing game as to which doctor is narrating which chapter. Yeah, yes, absolutely. 80 to 85% of this book is told from one of the doctor's point of view. I was interested to see how much of the tenth planet would be included in this. Obviously, on the the screen, you can uh, you can just have a you know kind of a short series of clips to uh, to kind of press see what uh, what went on there. Um, because obviously, we've already had the tenth Doctor novelization, um, and then and if you read the the Power of the Daleks novelization that John Peel wrote uh, again in the nineties, I think kind of the prologue to that is the end of the tenth planet. Uh, and it's everything that happens um, at Snow Snowcap Base, isn't it? The uh, yeah, Snowcap Base after the Doctor leaves, and that's got Unit and Sarah Jane Smith turning up, uh, and I think the humans kind of using the cyber technology left behind to you know kind of eventually go out and, and colonize Vulcan for the story of the Power of the Daleks. So yeah, I thought it was quite funny that there's all this stuff going on that you've just had the Tenth Planet twice upon a time when time's frozen and then just after that uh kind of unit and sarah jane smith turning up as well in uh you know from one of the other target books yes i think the first three chapters of the power of the dallas novelization is all 10th planet it takes you a long time to get to the tv episode proper yeah it's a while since i've read it but yeah i remember it uh, i remember it opening there and it's very heavy continuity <laughs> Uh, Two things to know about Twice Upon a Time, the TV episode. Number one, it actually begins with several reenactments of the Tenth Planet, so they hired new actors to play Ben and Polly. They recreate some scenes, so you can see the first Doctor starting to regenerate in color in a way they couldn't realize in the original. Number two, there were 
There's actually a lot more Tenth Planet recreation footage shot for Twice Upon a Time, which never even made it to the final product. You could have had probably ten minutes of the episode Tenth Planet recreated for the Christmas special. Yeah. And apart from leaving in the line about 709 episodes ago, Paul pretty much leaves all that out. So he does not try to recreate either the Jerry Davis novelization or the John Peel novelization. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't have any characters from Snowcat Base running around saying their lines over again. You don't see any frozen Cyberman corpses on the ground. It just gets right to the Doctor running into his future self. Yeah, I um, I wasn't sure how much had, had been filmed. I saw kind of bits and pieces. Uh, but uh, yeah, because you figure they've got the um, original Cybermen from the, the previous two stories to this. Uh, so they, they're bound to have filmed some stuff with them, I guess, because uh, that's, the, uh, that's the only other story they appear in. I haven't actually got the DVD yet of Twice Upon a Time. I don't know if that's, uh, if that's got any of the deleted scenes on it. I believe I saw a YouTube montage which has some of the extra deleted scenes. And that's where I'm getting this from. Ah, but I love that. Look at that. Me, the Christmas special would have been just a full-on reenactment of the Tenth Planet with nothing else. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not your core target audience there. <laughs> there must have been a temptation uh, to uh, to do that. Something that Mark Gatiss said, wasn't it, with the um, an adventure in space and time that uh, the temptation was to uh, to just keep going and reenact Marco Polo and <laughs> all these stories. I would have been customer number one for that. I would have bought multiple coffee just to make it profitable. Yeah. <laughs> so they could do more. I suppose that's the thing with the um, with this run of, of Target novelizations as well. When the original ones came out, um, and it's a massive cliche, but it, it was the only way to for people to uh, kind of relive those old adventures. You know, there wasn't, especially in this country, wasn't a lot of repeats. Um, there was no videos until uh, until much later on. Whereas the ones now, you've got ready access to the episodes on DVD or, or Netflix. Um, I think you kind of you're looking for different things in a way, aren't you? With these ones, you're looking just for more depth. You know, you're looking to see what the differences are. I suppose what I'm trying to say. There's uh... well, part of it obviously is looking forward. You want to add value. For the TV episode. Mm. So Russell T. Davies in the novelization of Rose adds a metric ton of new scenes and new characters. Paul doesn't do so much of that with Twice Upon a Time, but he also does a dead-on Terrence Dick's homage. He pretty much takes Terrence Dick's greatest hits and he very subtly works it into the novelization. So, for example, if you take every Terrence Dick novelization, and there were probably, what, about 80 or 90 of them, mm-hmm. just about every one of his books features a chapter entitled Escape to Danger. Yes. <laughs> well, guess what is one of the chapter titles yeah. in Twice Upon a Time, Escape to Danger. And but, even better, the very first sentence of, I want to say, either of the novelization or the second chapter is a perfect Terrence Dick's quote. So not the prologue, but chapter one. The second sentence of chapter one is almost a full quote from Terrence Dick's and the Dalek Invasion of Earth. Dalek Invasion of Earth starts with, through the ruins of a city stalk the ruins of a man. And the second line of this novelization is, 
through the snowy emptiness of Antarctica strode a man who was not a man. That is done completely on purpose, Paul being a great Terrence Dix fan. Right. So as a Terrence supporter, I love seeing all the little links in the novelization. Thank you, Paul. I I did love the line. Um, it said that the there's, there's one point when they when they arrive at um, uh, aboard the ship when the, the TARDIS has been taken up to the ship. The it says the first Doctor wheezed and groaned his way to the top of the stairs, which I thought was a, a lovely uh, homage to Terence Dix's famous description of the the sound of the TARDIS uh, materialization. There's, the uh, wheezing, groaning sound. Yes. Yeah, you said yeah, the first Doctor wheezing, groaned is what it says. That was uh, I picked up on that one, but I yeah I had not the uh, the Dalek invasion of Earth one. That's uh, yeah. As, as as a side note, when I met Terence at the Long Island Doctor Who convention a few years ago, I finally got to meet him and have him autograph some of my books. And all I could think to say to him is, you know, I'm a lawyer and I once managed to use the expression wheezing, groaning sound in a court of law. I think <laughs> Terence was very embarrassed. <laughs> probably not what he had in mind when he coined the phrase but that's how big of a fan I am that's brilliant yeah I thought one of the uh, the really interesting things in the book is that it says that the first doctor uh, during the events of the 10th planet is was just kind of making sure that the events played out as they did in his studies of history which I thought was uh, was quite unusual um other than historical episodes, for the Doctor to turn up with pre-knowledge um, is, is, is kind of unusual. Um, and doesn't I didn't really pick up on that from the episode, but I guess it explains why he's fairly passive in the story. Uh, it says that he's kind of waiting to step in if, if things, things are kind of going wrong. What's interesting is, as I was getting ready for this recording this morning, I didn't have a chance to re-watch twice upon a time, which I should have done, mea culpa. But I did read the chapter on Tenth Planet from About Time, which is the Lawrence Miles and Tatwood, the very, very detailed episode guide and criticism of the series. Mm-hmm. And they make the exact same point. This was almost a historical from the first Doctor's perspective. And the entire episode would have played out the same way, even if he had never shown up. So... I don't know if that point is coming from the Lawrence Miles book or if this is well known in certain circles of master's degree level fandom. Yeah. But this is not the first time today that I've heard that theory, put it that way. Right. I, it wasn't something I'd, I'd come across before. I think it's a little while since I watched The Tenth Planet. I think it was just before the, the new animation of Power of the Daleks came out, actually. Um, but it does kind of ring a bell that the Doctor seemed to have a little bit of pre-knowledge of the Cybermen. Um, which is probably one of the first times the Doctor meets a human, uh, meets an alien race that he's already heard of as well, I guess, because it's uh, it doesn't, especially for the early Doctors, doesn't happen that often, does it? It's main, I mainly can mainly think of it as the third Doctor onwards, where he already has the you know kind of knowledge of uh, of other aliens before he meets them or or has heard of them. Right, but the Santarons and so on. But the tenth planet, he actually. When he learns that a new planet is approaching, he actually is able to, I think, draw a picture of it before he sees it on the screen. That's right. Yeah, he does. Yeah. So that, yeah, that that to me was uh, was an interesting take there. Um, and then the other the other sort of detail we go into is why the why the each doctor doesn't want to regenerate. So the, for the first doctor, 
he he still wants to see Susan again with the face of the old man that she loved. Because you don't get that from the episode. I don't think they mentioned Susan in the episode twice upon a time. And um, I'm sure you picked up on this. Let's talk about this for a second. Paul actually includes, during one of the first Dr. POV scenes, he actually gives us what we never got in the previous 50-odd years. He actually tells us that the first Doctor has been able to go back in time and has been able to meet Susan and her children. So we spent the last 50 years assuming the first Doctor never saw Susan again, and Paul is thankfully able to rewrite that and well, give us a whole new, cha- a whole new missing chapter. Well, I took that to be um, from the five Doctors, because they get in the, t- the Doctor, the first Doctor and Susan get in the TARDIS together at the end of the five Doctors, don't they? I took that to be a sort of an extrapolation ah. of that, so he took her back to the post-Dalek invasion London and, and met and spent time with them then. Um, I might be uh, just kind of uh, inferring that. But that's that's where I took it from uh, when he said this. He said something like the second time, doesn't he? Um, the second time they said goodbye. So I, I took that to be from the five doctors, but it isn't necessarily. It could be that he, he has managed to steer the TARDIS to to go and see her. You know, they never explicitly tell us anywhere what happened after the two of them go off together at the end of five doctors. So maybe that's where Paul was putting this. But it was yeah. very nice to see, regardless. Yeah, absolutely. And the scene when he. Uh, when they first arrive on the testimony ship uh, and the first doctor goes out first, the, when uh, they, they say, oh, you can see her again, I think uh, a lot of members of the audience, particularly, um, like you say, kind of fans of the first doctor, were thinking the first doctor would be hoping it would be Susan. Um, and he, he fully puts that in the book, that he has that hope, doesn't he? He, doesn't, he tries not to get his hopes up. When it isn't Susan, it's Bill. He still feels the kind of uh, the pain of it not being her. Well, I was hoping that Michelle Gomez's character would turn out to be Susan in the uh, previous 10th, uh, 12th Doctor season finale. So I've been waiting for Susan for a long time. Yeah. the um, In the end of time, uh, you've got the, the character um, who uh, comes back with Rassilon. Um, and Russell T. Davis said at the time, you know, he intended it to be the Doctor's mother, but it can be basically be whoever you want it to be. Um, which before I'd kind of read that in my kind of head canon, that was Susan, an older or a regenerated Susan. And in my head canon, the Eighth Doctor Adventures had a different version of the Doctor's mother who appears in several of the books. She was a 19th century human time traveler from Victorian England. Yeah. So in my head canon, she's the Doctor's mother. So I could definitely put Susan in the end of time rather than a different version of the Doctor's mother. Yeah, and I think it still works with that scene because it's the one that makes him um, kind of think twice about shooting Rassilon, isn't it? Right. Yeah, so if it was was Susan or his mother, it's going to be somebody who's going to just kind of uh, jar him out of that that line of thought. Uh, And then the the Twelfth Doctor, um, we learn, is that uh, one of the reasons he doesn't want to regenerate is because of how much he's experienced during this incarnation um, in terms of holding down a job in one place when he's been the lecturer at the university, um, that he's been married and and lived a long time in a a loving relationship. So it was nice to give it that kind of of depth as well. 
And he expressly says that the ring the 12th Doctor wears was his wedding ring to River Song, which I don't think I'd pick that up from TV, but the Doctor was wearing a ring which falls off his finger. Yeah. So that would have been his wedding ring to River. That's Paul makes it. that pretty clear. Yeah, and, and kind of um, the behind-the-scenes reason is it, it is Peter Capaldi's actual wedding ring, isn't it, that he, he didn't want to take off, so they, they adapted it um, so that it, it looked more unusual and more alien, I guess. Um, so it's a nice link to that, that it, it was a real wedding ring, and, uh, and in the fiction is as well. The, That's um, one of the areas where the novelization can uh, definitely expand on our appreciation of the original story. Yeah, actually, like the um, like the bit we were talking about before with um, the first Doctor meeting Susan again. When when the book says that he's he's kind of um, been married and and lived in a loving relationship or had a loving relationship, I took that to mean River Song, kind of following the events of um, the Christmas special, The Husbands of River Song. But in the uh, I read the the review of this book in the Doctor Who magazine, uh, the the critic Richard Atkinson. He kind of took it to mean, or he says, I assume that he got married while he was working as a lecturer and guarding the vault at St. Luke's University. Um, just wondered what, what you took away from that, which, um, which way? I thought that he was specifically referring to River because the Day of the Doctor novelization, which I read last week by Stephen Moffat, talks a lot about the Doctor and River having extra time together that we never saw on television. Yeah. So, I remember Richard Atkinson from Records Doctor Who 25 years ago. That's a good name to hear again. But in this case, I probably disagree with him. I think that the book is referring to River as uh, the Doctor's wife. Yeah, that's that's completely. Uh, I didn't I didn't take any other meaning from it until until I read that, and it, it kind of made me think twice. But but rereading it, I, I completely took it to mean. Because um, there's a good number of years, isn't there, that, that, that he spends, I can't remember the name of the planet, um, that they wind up on at the end of The Husbands of River Song. Um, but it's clear they've been there for a number of years, and then when the Series 10 starts again, and, and Missy makes reference to it, that, uh, that he's kind of been out of circulation for a while, living in, in wedded bliss. Right. Uh, and then we, uh, the, the, uh, a couple of other bits that I really liked uh, in this book, the, we learn that the videotape, the VHS that um, Archie picks up aboard the TARDIS, so it's the doc, is the Daleks' master plan. <laughs> it's the, uh, yes, yes. They lost their copy a few years ago. <laughs> oh, if only that were real. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing that I loved, um, so the original Target novelizations in the 1970s had their blurb, The Changing Faces of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. That had vanished from the novelizations by the time I started collecting the reprints in the 1980s. But they put that back in the four new books. And they used the changing face of Doctor Who, that blurb here, to explain why the Doctor on the cover is David Bradley and not William Hartnell. It says, The cover illustration portrays the first Doctor Who, whose physical appearance was later transformed when he discarded his worn-out body in favor of a new one. Therefore, his features are in a state of flux, which is the same explanation they gave on TV for why he looks like David Bradley and not the original actor. Yeah. So that made me laugh out loud. Yeah, it's great, that, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, he says, uh, on the, the episode, he says something like, your, uh, your face is all over the place, doesn't he? <laughs> yes, yes. The same way they excused Peter Davison's expanding waistline in Time Crash. 
Yeah, yeah, and his his hair's not quite as uh, as full, is it as well? Yeah, it's it's the uh, yeah. he's shorted the shorted the temporal differential or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we've got a reading for, for this book uh, from John Featonby from the Highlanders podcast. Uh, so we will uh, we'll hear that now. With a clang from outside, the TARDIS ceased to sway. They'd been placed back down on something solid. Doubtless the floor of the spaceship had sealed beneath them. They all turned to look at the doors. Whatever power could do this, thought the Doctor, might well have the knowledge to enter the ship without his permission, but this time, diplomatically almost, when the voice called, it called from outside. Exit your capsule. The chamber of the dead awaits you. What to do? The doctor looked to his other self. This time the old man seemed willing to let him take the lead. The doctor lowered his voice. Obviously, we have one little advantage. Now what advantage? asked the first doctor. Whoever these creatures are, they know everything about us. Not everything. They don't know. There's two of us. The first doctor smiled impishly at that idea and patted him on the arm. The doctor wasn't sure he liked being touched by his other self. Apart from the awkward intimacy of it, Time Lords tended not to get touchy-feely with their previous incarnations. It just wasn't done, because in most circumstances it would cause a shorting out of the time differential as the Blinovich limitation effect came into play. In short, zap. Clearly whatever had happened to time, it was shutting off that effect too. His earlier self should know that full well. He'd already had a lot of experience with... But then the doctor noticed the first doctor examining his glove, where he patted the doctor and realised that actually the old boy had come to the right conclusion before he had. If they think you're out there talking to them, he continued, they won't think you're also in here getting the engines back online. The first doctor considered for a moment, looking rather taken aback. Of course, he admitted. Very good. I should have thought of that. You will, doctor. You will. The doctor grinned. The old boy wanted to be in charge, of course. All the other selves he'd met had taken pity on the youth and let him, but he wouldn't get his own way with this incarnation. He slammed down the security controls. Fields up! The first doctor nodded, adjusted his cravat and straightened his waistcoat. He was ready for action. The captain looked awkwardly between them a grateful expression on his face as if he was feeling unworthy of all this protection. The doctor watched his earlier self march towards the doors, clutching his lapels, and felt at once nostalgia for how brave he'd once been, and nervousness at how that bravery had, in part, been born of sheer ignorance. Come on, he whispered to the captain, let's get to work. Thank you very much to John for that reading. Um, I really like the uh, the way he did the voices there, the uh, the, the accents, uh, the impressions from the first and twelfth Doctor. I think that's the first time we've uh, we've had that, so uh, really appreciate that. Uh, what I really liked about that Thank clip, you, John. Uh, I, I really like about that clip is the um, it, it kind of explains why in the three Doctors and the five Doctors, the 
the later incarnations kind of defer to, to Hartnell's incarnation, or Richard Herndl in the case of the five doctors. He's the youngest and the least experienced. Um, but they kind of, uh, he kind of takes a, a bit of a leadership role. Uh, so I like the, the line in there that says, um, they took pity on him. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they took pity on the young fellow and let him, but uh, the Twelfth Doctor wasn't going to have any truck with that. Oh. It made sense on TV when you have the First Doctor as the oldest actor in the room, but now with Peter Capaldi being the same age as Hartnell, that explanation no longer works. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Slightly before that, actually, the, the, the bit that I like, um, going back to the kind of Tenth Planet stuff, as the TARDIS is being winched aboard, um, the first Doctor kind of thinks if time wasn't frozen, the people in the snow-capped base would see the ship um, and, and see the TARDIS being winched up. So that was a, a nice reminder that for him that adventure's just happened and all those people are still down there. And in That's terms right. of later on as well, we get the, the Twelfth Doctor talking about his wounds from his battle with the Cybermen at the end of... Um, the Doctor Falls, which I think because you watched the, the episode at Christmas kind of in isolation, uh, it's been a, you know, a good few months after the Doctor Falls. Uh, it's a good reminder in both cases what, you know, where they've just come from. Uh, and it's because you don't see Snowcat face at all, do you, in the episode? So that was a nice little tie in, I thought. You would have seen Snowcat face if they had left in a lot of the recreated scenes for Twice Upon a Time, but no, you're right. It adds an immediacy which wasn't always there on television, the yeah. previous stories. I guess if they looked down and seen the snow-capped base from a, a kind of a new viewer point of view, or, you know, as, as Doctor Who fans often talk about, the casual viewer, um, it would have, it might have thrown them a bit and, and kind of given you the idea that it had some significance to this story that it didn't. Right. The uh, the line I, I really love when, um, I think it's when the first Doctor goes out to speak to testimony on his own. Uh, it says, uh, the doctor was waiting for the woman to become affronted by his impudence and reveal some information about herself. I thought that was a, <laughs> a really nice, precise little um, summation of the doctor's modus operandi uh, and could it could apply to any of the doctors as well. Yeah, that's a very good bit of insight into, into the way the doctor usually goes and does his business, for sure. Yeah. When, uh, once Bill turns up, uh, the, uh, they, they talk about, they mention the Doctor's monster book, um, although I think they say that the Doctor himself refers to it as um, something like sentient beings who just happen to look different from us or something like that. Um, but it's called the monster book, yes. Yeah, it's got monster book written on the front, um, and it's got kind of pictures of previous incarnations and different aliens and stuff. This is also mentioned in Paul Cornell's book, um, his Titan comic book story, The Four Doctors, or just, I think it's just called Four Doctors. Uh, that, uh, so I thought that was a nice little kind of cross-pollination to, um, uh, to one of his other recent stories. Uh, and a nice idea that the Doctor would have that as well <laughs> and call it a monster book. And I also have to say, I love how Paul handled Bill in the book, because on television it's definitely a case of is she or isn't she the real Bill? Yeah. And what Paul is able to do is go back and fill in the blanks, and he can tell us exactly what Bill got up to after she was rescued by the pilot at the end of the Doctor Falls. And he's able to sketch in pretty much the whole rest of her life and explain how testimony eventually got to her. So it gives Bill this sort of explicit happy ending that 
you can only guess at it from the TV version of Twice Upon a Time, because we learn that she able is able to go back to Earth with the pilot and live out her whole life as a human, and they have a home together, and they have cats together, and she gets to live to a full old age before testimony comes for her. Whereas, the assumption that I got on TV is that because she looked so young, the assumption is that testimony got her before she died on the spaceship, as opposed to her getting to live out a full life and live another, you know, 40, 50, 60 years on Earth. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Um, yeah, about her appearance. But yeah, that um, that would make sense. Yeah, and it's it was clear in here is they've um, they've limited her ability to remember anything far, you know, much beyond the events of, of the Doctor Falls initially. Until so, the end yeah. of the book, when you get the rest of her biography, and of course Nardole, you get the rest of his life as well. Yeah, Nardole cameo. Yeah, that was uh, that was nice to to find out what happened to him as well because that was that was left much more ambiguous. Um, they were basically just waiting for the Cybermen to arrive again, weren't they? Um, and and kind of have another battle at that point. So yeah, it was good to know but that he Paul gives Nardole a very happy and full and much funnier life than you could envision from television. Yeah, yeah, um, and even the, something I hadn't picked up on from the TV episode was that the the testimony only record uh, the lives and memories of humans um, but uh, they made an exception for Nardole so that was uh, that was good yes which I, now, guess... I don't know about you but the, uh, we haven't talked about Mark Gatiss's character yet but I thought he did some terrific stuff with Mark Gatiss uh, he calls the character Archie throughout the book yeah. rather than just for the captain so we get a lot more more of Archie than we got on television. On TV, he was kind of a passive passenger along for the ride. But Paul puts a lot of scenes from his viewpoint when we're not inside the head of the 12th Doctor or the 1st Doctor. Yeah, and the, the absolute bewilderment for him, isn't it, of, um, uh, of what's happening to him and being in the uh, being in the TARDIS, all the other stuff that's going on. There's, there's a lot of kind of nice comic stuff in there as well. And in the scene in the crater when he's lying on the ground with the Toby Whithouse German soldier character, Paul includes several German lines of dialogue spoken by the Toby Whithouse character without translation. Mm. So I'm standing there on the New York City subway waiting to get cell service as we pull into each station, and I was typing out the German text from the book to get a Google translation on my phone. So I now have a much better sense of what was going on because I was able to get the translation through my phone, which Paul did not include in the book. No. But it makes sense for him to not include it because obviously the captain would not know any German. Yeah. So, no, I didn't think to do that. What, what sort of lines um, does he deliver? Do you have any of them to hand? I'm not going to try to speak the German because no. my accent will be a blight upon your podcast. <laughs> but in the first Archie chapter, chapter two, entitled The Captain, the German speaks two sentences in German, and that is, please go away, leave me here, I don't wish to kill you. That's how Google translated it for me. Right. And that's very poignant because now you know what the German character is thinking and the captain can only guess. Yeah, absolutely. And that they were both thinking the same thing, that they 
they didn't want to kill each other, but they also didn't want to die. It was that uh, it's that self defense thing, isn't it, that he, he talks about? And that's one of the reasons that I'm really glad that Paul Cornell came out of Doctor Who retirement to write this. Because if you go into Paul's back catalog and you go to the original human nature, as opposed to the TV script, which was very, very different, mm -hmm. but the human nature novel, the seventh Doctor novel that came out in 1995, which I've also blogged about in the past, that was a very political book. It was a very anti-war book, and it was a very anti-World War One book, where Paul goes into the politics of the war. And the original human nature includes a non-fiction epilogue talking about what a bad idea World War One was. And for him now to novelize the World War One scenes 20, 25 years later for twice upon a time, he's just the man for the job, and he does it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, I love that book as well, Human Nature. Um, I've got the, the audio book of that one as well. Um, which, oh, okay. uh, who narrates yeah. the audio book for that? It is... Um, the lady who plays Benny Summerfield for Big Finish, I've totally, my mind. Oh, Lisa, Lisa Bowman. Lisa Bowman, yeah, and she, she directs a lot of this stuff as well, doesn't she? My mind totally went blank then, yeah, um, Lisa Bowman directs it, very good, so yeah, I've, I've listened to that more recently than I've read the book, but definitely one of my favourite new adventures, it's, uh, it's one of those ones that, um, that stayed with me. All right, I got to pick up that audio book. Thanks for the uh, tip. <laughs> no problem. The uh, just as you talk about Mark Gatiss there, one of the the things when uh, there was a nice little in joke, I think as well, is a nod to the League of Gentlemen, um, which uh, Mark Gatiss is, is is obviously one of the league. With the twelfth Doctor, is he's, he's talking about the uh, the first Doctor's precious things that he's got kind of dotted around the TARDIS. You know, he kind of had some antiques on plinths and things like that. Uh, and precious things is a is a thing from one of the League of Gentlemen characters. Uh, so I take it that's um, that's a link to that as well. I don't know if you've ever, ever seen that. If it if it kind of made it over to America at all. No, as a dumb American, I have actually never seen that series. I'm aware of it, but I've never seen it. It's it's uh, it's very funny. I don't. You kind of either love it or hate it. I think uh, they they came back um, a few months ago for th as a I think it was a twentieth anniversary special. They did they did three episodes. Um, which I thought were absolutely brilliant, and they've also reformed to go on tour. I've got tickets to see them in Edinburgh in, I think August. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing that. Oh, enjoy! Yeah, that would be, be great. Just to come back to that point about the antiques and the first Doctor's TARDIS, Paul puts in two very wickedly funny things. He tells us that all those items in the first Doctor's TARDIS that we thought were antiques were actually acquired at a jumble sale. Yeah. They weren't at all. The Doctor didn't get them by traveling to those times and places. Yeah. <laughs> and he also reveals that the reason the original TARDIS was so bright is because the first Doctor didn't know how to change the factory settings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, so that was really, really funny. Very funny anachronisms. Yeah. That thing about the uh, the, the original TARDIS being really brightly lit all the time, it's it's like the gag in the, uh, the Five-ish Doctors, isn't it? The Peter Davison one. When all the old doctors go into the what at the time was the current TARDIS set, and they, they complain about how dark it was, yeah. <laughs> totally <laughs> this is not, the other point of view. Not what they were used to at all, yeah. Um, and there's a really nice little bit of a kind of continuity tidying up, which is the um, the way that the 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 acronym TARDIS, the way the D is sometimes dimension and sometimes dimensions. 
uh, and he explains it as um, the, uh, the the TARDIS translation circuit. He says sometimes I've played with the, the translation circuit, doesn't he? Yes, yes. It's, um, I think this. I might be misremembering this. Is it Susan who says it first in an unearthly child, and she's supposed to say dimensions, but she delivers it as dimension, and then from that point on, it's kind of pretty interchangeable. And I think it's Christopher Eccleston might have done a similar thing as well that he he kind of either changed it or delivered it differently to the script. I kind of remember. I can't. I don't know what the source is for that, but I kind of remember reading it somewhere. No, it's good. It's good to finally tie all of that together. Yeah. I think for uh, for kind of real long terms fans like that, I think you get um, Jonathan Morris is a writer who uh, who takes the opportunity to tidy up continuity things a lot as well. Uh, in his, yes, in you and I actually talked about a Jonathan Morris book a few months ago. Yeah, that was uh, Plague City. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a Plague good one as well. Yeah. Um, the other kind of really filthy joke as well in here is the. Uh, is how he describes the scene where the the first doctor has the sonic sun, sunglasses on, uh, and he says about browser history. Oh yes, yes. And then he talks about River Song sending. Uh, he says something like, "What is it? Oh yeah, cat pictures." That is. Uh... <laughs> oh, oh, I just got that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's uh, that's that's kind of too much information, isn't it? Um, but yeah, that's. Um... That's kind of like The Simpsons or something, I think, isn't it? Where you've got the uh, the way the joke works on one level for, for kids reading it, maybe, and then a different level for, for adults. Yes. Again, I was as someone who's been reading the Target novelization since I was 11 years old, I was making a list of all the Target and Terrence Dix-isms that Paul included, which obviously is a much younger age uh, level reading than you're aiming for at the moment with the uh, cat photos. Yeah. <laughs> so... Chapter 3 ends with an exclamation point. The last line of Chapter 3 is the doctor was thrown from his feet. Something was smashing against the Taurus! Exclamation point. That's a classic Terrence Dixism. Yeah. And then later on, he talks about the when the Taurus lands in testimony, the door is open to a spaceship of very strange design. That's another classic Terrence Dixism. Mm. He would use the word strange whenever he couldn't quite describe what was going on yeah. on screen. <laughs> There's um, a nice bit that he puts in as well, because um, I, I kind of remember watching the episode and thinking that uh, one of the things uh, that um, Bradley doesn't do as the first Doctor is kind of fluff any lines or get anybody's name wrong. Uh, so you get a bit where he's thinking about Sarah Kingdom and he cycles through different names, he thinks Kingston and Kingsley before he finally kind of hits on, on Kingdom. Uh, oh, yes. That was a nice, uh, a nice homage to the first Doctor, I thought. When he finds the 12th Doctor's supply of brandy to give to the captain. Yes, he yeah. can't remember Sarah Kingdom's name. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit as well, which I think um, uh, kind of might relate to that era. When Bill Potts uh, meets the first Doctor and she thinks to herself he's got a voice for selling life cover to the over 50s. Peter Purvis, uh, I don't know if he still does it, but he does a lot of those adverts in the UK or he did a lot of those adverts about life cover for the over 50s. And obviously in Big Finish, he vi he voices the first Doctor quite a lot, doesn't he? Yes. I did, it might be a bit tenuous. I, I kind of thought that was a little nod to Peter Purvis there. Something else that Paul does is the 12th Doctor on TV uses several pop culture slash 
derogatory nicknames for the first doctor, like Corporal Jones or Mr. Pastry. Yeah, Mary Berry. Oh, actually yeah. goes in and explains what those references mean and who the actors were. Yeah. And he even talks about how the doctor has spent time with actors who play those characters in real life. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and Mary Berry's quite a famous sort of uh, a baker over here, you know. And she uh, she's on the Great British Bake Off, so she's she's kind of famous for making cakes and things like that. Yeah, that uh, says they they spent a summer together or something like that, doesn't she? Yeah. <laughs> and I talk about Corporal Jones from Dad's Army because Paul mentioned that in the discontinuity guide, but the other ones I had to resort to uh, Wikipedia for. Right. Yeah, I guess they. Um... Yeah, they're probably not people that are uh, that kind of well-known overseas, yeah. Well, one of the things I picked up on was um, there's some links to Stephen Moffat's novelization of Day of the Doctor, where you've got the um, the poem from Barusa, the idea about um, uh, regeneration. It's like walking into a storm uh, and a stranger walks out and that stranger is you. That's, I think that's quoted in both books. But I don't remember ever seeing anywhere before, so it's like they've they've kind of uh, you know collaborated a little bit, um, you know, across the books for that. It, I, I might be wrong; yeah. it might be from the New Adventures it, or something, but it didn't sound familiar to me. I think it was in his blog. Paul mentioned that he actually got a poem written by Stephen Moffat, which didn't make it to air for Twice Upon a Time, which he included in the novelization. Ah, so right, towards the end of the book, when they're at the Christmas truce in 1914, the first doctor and the twelfth doctor recite the poem one after the other. And that must have been the poem that Stephen Moffat wrote, which is attributed to Barusa. Yeah. And the doctors laugh about how bad the poem is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hadn't, I, I read that news as well. I, I totally missed that line. Um, but yeah, that, um, I think that's nice the way it's, uh, it's tied across the two books there. Uh, yes. And we also learn that the um, the the twelfth Doctor is drinking whiskey um, right at the end as well when they're back in no man's land because uh, they're having the drinks out of the tin cups, aren't they? But you don't know what they're drinking, um, and that's what he drinks in his first story, Deep Breath, isn't it? Before his final confrontation with the Clockwork Man. Yes, so you're I right. That if that was a, a kind of a book ending, you know, kind of thing um, that that's been put in there. And speaking of bookending, Paul also includes, he incorporates into the prose the first Doctor's last line of dialogue. It's far from being all over. He puts that in the text as the first Doctor goes off to regenerate. And then later on, he takes the second Doctor's first line of dialogue, trying to focus on one thing, one thing. He puts that in the prose from the Twelfth Doctor's point of view. So that was a very nice, subtle pair of continuity references bookend into the prose. First Doctor's last line and the second Doctor's first line. Right, I hadn't picked up on that at all. Is uh, that... Paul is a genius at the stuff and he knows exactly yeah. what he's doing. Absolutely. Is that when he's, um, just before he regenerates then, when he's uh, to focus on one thing, or is that after he's regenerated uh, into... Uh, that's as he's about to regenerate. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, we get the final, pro the final chapter, the epilogue, from Jodie Whittaker's point of view. Which means we have Jodie Whittaker POV chapters in two of the four novelizations, even before she's uh, done her first episode proper. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's surprising, isn't it? We've got that, and um, in the the Missy Chronicles, uh, which we talked about a few weeks ago, 
there's a surprise cameo in that as well. Uh, so there's uh, it, it's quite nice that these little um, little things are popping up. It's like the uh, like Peter Capaldi appearing in Day of the Doctor, isn't it? Um, that we're yes. getting these little uh, these little hints beforehand. Uh, or the eighth Doctor appearing in the last several Seventh Doctor New Adventures as little off-screen cameos. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, what's even you can talk about this on your Rose podcast, but Russell T Davies and Rose shows us the Thirteenth Doctor and the Fourteenth Doctor and the Fifteenth Doctor. So that's a tremendous burden on the future casting directors. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, we're also obviously we're getting another. Uh, future Doctor in the same body as the fourth Doctor as well coming along at some point, which will be curator, yes. yeah, which will be difficult to to show on screen, I guess. <laughs> uh, hopefully, they find a way. Yeah, yeah. Something um, I I didn't pick up on when I watched the episode twice upon a time, but I, I kind of saw a little bit of criticism afterwards um, when the twelfth Doctor is giving his final lines and their words of advice to the incarnation that follows um i did see a couple of people on twitter saying it's a little bit kind of uh like mansplaining you know that uh it's a, it's a female doctor that's following him and he's kind of giving instructions so i felt like paul connell was was nudging this a little bit he um he says in the text that um he's addressing the the pale young man who'll follow him because uh, he said he's the, he's one of the time lords that's kind of basically stuck in a, a cycle of getting the same type of body um, and then after he's done that, and just before he changes, he he sees what's coming. Uh, he kind of gets a vision. Um, I wonder if that was a little bit of tweaking of that to avoid the accusation. Well, on the one hand, the lines that the Twelfth Doctor says to himself in Farewell are endlessly quotable. Mm-hmm. And I've seen them in probably a thousand different Facebook memes since Christmas. Yeah. But yes, there was a sense, I think, I forget who said it on, on Facebook, but somebody said it was the doctor mansplaining himself to death. And Paul softens that a little bit by allowing us to see who's coming. And the doctor is at peace with that and very happy about it, too. Yeah. Yeah, it just felt like a tiny little kind of tweak uh, that just, uh, yeah, just uh, an improvement, definitely. Yeah. And the other thing is uh, what occurred to me when I watched the episode or when I watched it again, um, it, you know, there's the stuff about, you know, kind of be kind and, and, and all that kind of stuff. The previous Christmas, um, our Prime Minister, Theresa May, I think it was an interview in the Radio Times revealed that she watches Doctor Who on Christmas Day. So um, part of me was wondering whether that was a message for her, you know, about kind of being kind and, uh, you know, love wins and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know the way, um, and if you watch, uh, I'm a big fan of Last Week Tonight, uh, and John Oliver on there, he buys adverts on Fox to try and get messages to Donald Trump. <laughs> oh, yes, um, the, the, the catheter cowboy, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Boris Johnson recently uh, did that as well. Our foreign secretary went over, did an interview on Fox and Friends uh, in the idea that Trump might watch it to try and influence him to stay in the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, so uh, that, was, that, uh, that didn't work. No, <laughs> no, there's no sign of any of it's working so far. Um, but yeah, that that sort of did occur to me twelve months down the line. With the knowledge that that the prime minister watches it, was there anything in there that would uh, maybe try and uh, give her a Christmas message? Well, if the president of the United States watches Doctor Who, I'll offer to write the next Christmas special for him. Yeah, <laughs> I I can't imagine him watching it personally, but. <laughs> No, but that's a story for another day. Yeah. 
I just want to say, I have been a Paul Cornell fan for now more than 25 years, going back to when I discovered Love and War, his second new adventure, through the Records Doctor Who in 1992. Mm -hmm. I've read all of his books, and I'm very happy that he came out of his Doctor Who retirement to give us this one last Target-style novelization. He was the perfect choice for this episode, and he did a perfect job with it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm the same. I uh, actually talked about this on the podcast last week um, about reading Time Worm Revelation when it came out when I was about 11 or 12. Uh, and that book really stayed with me. Uh, really enjoyed it. Um, I've enjoyed basically everything that he's done ever since. And every time you, you kind of see the announcement that maybe he's not going to do any more, which I think um, the, the last couple of comics that he did, uh, The Girl Who Loved Doctor Who and uh, the... Uh, the Herald third doctor, the, the yeah, name of it, which escapes me. Heralds of Destruction. Yes, um, yes. That they might be his last one, and it's always like, ah, you know, it's uh, uh, it's kind of disappointing. But yeah, you, you kind of read anything else that he does as well. I don't know if you've read Chalk, but that is just a brilliant, brilliant read. Um, absolutely fantastic. Um, but then, yeah, I'm always really gladdened when he does come back because uh, he always he always delivers something fantastic. Uh, coverage of the new adventures in the U.S. was very hard to come by in the early 90s, so it took me a long time to get Time Worm Revelation, but I found Love and War shortly after it came out. Mm-hmm. And the advance word on that on Records Doctor Who was phenomenal. And you had a lot of folks in 1992 whose signature lines were Read Love and War, Read Love and War, Read Love and War. Yeah, That was my first Paul book, and I went out of my way to find it. And I pretty much read the whole thing in one night. And I've just never stopped being a Paul Cornell fan since then. And I'm really glad he was persuaded to write this one. I really am. Yeah, definitely. The uh, And if you've heard the Big Finish adaptation of Love and War, that's very good as well. Yes, I have listened to that. And in fact, it's funny for me, as somebody who's you know not from the UK and I don't know the pronunciation, it turns out I was mentally mispronouncing all those names for 25 years. Right. <laughs> and the audiobook set me, the, the, the Big Finish adaptation set me straight. Yeah. <laughs> so now I've got to go back and read the book again so I can pronounce the names right. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very rereadable book. Uh, same thing with uh, Time Worm Revelation. I reread it last year. Um, and I said this last week as well, but it, what really struck me with um, Revelation was how much um, is familiar from the new series. You've got the, you know, the buildings on the moon. Um, like you did in Smith and Jones, uh, you've got the the child in the astronaut suit, um, which you get in the sort of the the Impossible Ast- Astronaut. There's the um, the kind of the afterlife stuff that you get in uh, Dark Water and and Death Death in Heaven. You know, that kind of digitally created afterlife. And the uh, Church Under Siege story that we later got in Paul's own Father's Day from Series One. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's it's kind of a motif sort of thing that you see in in a lot of Paul Cannell's work is the idea of the church as a sanctuary. Because uh, you've got it in um, in Father's Day, it's in Heralds of Destruction, yeah, Time Worm Revelation, uh, yeah, definitely something that you, uh, that you that you see crop up in his work. In fact, in Heralds of Destruction, he says in the uh, in the author's notes at the back that is specifically his wife's church. Yeah, his wife is the vicar. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that's a terrific story as well. I, I kind of I often mention that on the podcast, <laughs> kind of rave about it because uh, um, I don't think that many people seem to have read it that I've spoken to. But I thought, yeah, definitely the best uh, the best 
Titan comic that I've read, and I think they're all terrific. Really looking forward to the seventh Doctor one, actually, that's coming up, where they've got uh, Andrew Cartmel and Ben Aronovich uh, co-writing um, a limited run of Seventh Doctor Adventures, so that'll be, uh, that'll be one I look forward to. I'm going to have to take on a second job so I can buy all these. Yeah, this is the trouble. I, I can't keep up with... Uh, I mean, I can't keep up with the Titans, can't keep up with Big Finish. It's uh, it's it's a good time to be a Doctor Who fan, though. Yes, a very good time to be a Doctor Who fan. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure discussing this book with you. Always a pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me back again. No problem at all. Thank you for listening at home. Uh, join me next time. I'll be speaking to Keith about the War Master, the Big Finish uh, box set with Derek Jacobi reprising his role as the War Master. Thank you very much. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.